Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today's Jill's Pin is a Capitol building because we are going to be talking about the State of the Union delivered to the full Congress. Yes, so tonight, President Biden will deliver the State of the Union speech in front of a joint session of Congress with the Vice President and the Speaker of the House sitting behind him and members of the military, the Cabinet, and the Supreme Court arrayed in front of him. This is a tradition that dates all the way back to 1790 when President George Washington gave the first ever State of the Union. It was only 1,089 words. Some subsequent presidents delivered a written report and Harry Truman gave the first televised State of the Union. Jimmy Carter gave a written report as well. Today we'll be discussing with an expert what President Biden should say during tonight's State of the Union, whether Republicans will actually listen and acknowledge his administration's accomplishments over the last year. And if they won't, is there anything that will get them to do so? And we'll also get into whether the State of the Union needs some revamping for a 21st century style audience. So we want to talk about the substance that we can expect tonight, as well as the presentation style. And we have a special guest for that. It's someone you all know from MSNBC. He's been a guest on iGen Politics before and is one of my favorite anchors on MSNBC. He is Lawrence O'Donnell, who has a lot of expertise to bring to us tonight. It extends to his experience in politics, in the Senate, and in delivering clear and persuasive and engaging messages, and in um, not just government and political expertise, uh, where he got it from working for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and uh, also for several Senate committees, including the Finance Committee, but also as a writer and producer for the West Wing TV series, something that I loved for many, many years. And that was all before joining MSNBC. So thank you, Lawrence, for joining us today. It's great to be here. Really fun. So last time we had you on the show, we talked with you about you as a person, but today we want to capitalize on your expertise and talk about tonight's State of the Union. So just to get started, the State of the Union will look different than last year. We'll see a new speaker sitting next to uh, the vice president behind him and slightly more Republicans in the chamber than Democrats as they gained nine House seats and now control the House, although they lost one Senate seat. Should the composition of the Congress now change how President Biden delivers a speech? Well, it changes uh, the reality. It changes um, the possible, right? So it cannot be a legislative aspirations speech in a, in a serious way because absolutely nothing that President Biden wants will be passed by the House of Representatives. And everything that is passed by the Republican House of Representatives will never even be taken up by the Senate. So it's not like, oh, you know, there's a Republican House. We get to see Joe Biden use the veto pen. No, you won't, because Chuck Schumer is going to use the veto pen before it ever gets to the White House. Right. So it's going to be two years of basically no legislative activity. That is why the debt ceiling is so important, because that has to be done through legislative uh maneuvers, I will call them at this point, because there are some tricks that are up the sleeve of the Democrats and the House of Representatives for that, which is kind of complicated. But that's it. You know, that's the only thing that is that is that you could call even likely uh, to pass both bodies and get to the president will be at some point the debt ceiling. So 
So that thing that you always, you know, get used to hearing from Democrats about, you know, we're going to raise the minimum wage and you rattle off these things that they're going to do. That That's not, to the extent that that's in the speech, uh, that's ignorable. That's not going to be reality. Uh, and so uh, his, his challenge is, according to this recent ABC poll, that 62% of the people in America do not know what Joe Biden does for a living. 62% of them say that the Biden presidency so far has accomplished little or nothing. Now, it is simply an objective fact. This You, you can dislike these things, and I'm sure there are Republicans who will agree with what I'm about to say because they want to dismantle everything he did. But Joe Biden is the most accomplished two-year, first two-year president in 90 years since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. There's no one close. And so 62% are completely wrong. And the 32% or 34% or so who think Joe Biden has accomplished a lot are correct. Uh, and so he has to speak to an audience that doesn't understand him at all. You know, I mean, really not at all. And this is just the beginning of a two-year campaign, and it is a campaign, to change enough of the minds of those 62% to say, yes, we should continue with the Democratic presidency in, in the election two years from now. So this State of the Union address for all previous presidents, and presumably for this president, is always, it's always considered the first speech of the re-election campaign. And Lawrence, what you're saying makes 100% sense. But if you were his speechwriter then, uh, what would you have him say? What do you think his major themes <laughs> be? He, he has accomplished so much. How can he communicate that to not just the 32% who already believe he's done a great job, but to that 60-some percent who have no idea? Well, having never written a political speech for anyone other than a fictional character uh, in the West. <laughs> that counts too. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, you know, those speeches on screen in their entirety are about 45 seconds. You, know? <laughs> you just do this little clip of it. Right? So uh, I have no idea. And so, and by the way, this is why we are, uh, we are currently violating uh, one of my principles of operation at MSNBC, which is I hate to be on before the speech because the question before the speech there's two questions what is he going to say true answer i don't know what should he say true answer i don't know because i have no idea how you communicate to those 62 percent who you've yeah. already done everything you possibly could to communicate yeah. with them uh and that's why i always like to come on right after the speech and then we can talk about what he actually said um, and and that's why you won't see me till 10 o'clock tonight uh, on, on the network. Um, but, uh, you know, look, I, I, I don't know how to write these speeches. I know everyone in the news media thinks they do. Uh, none, of them, none of them ever have written any of these speeches. So I have my doubts about whether they can. Um, you know, I think it's a hopeless exercise, frankly. I really do. Uh, there's no evidence uh, that the State of the Union address changes anything. It, it, you don't see, it used to be, you know, up through the 1990s that you'd see this bump. You know, Bill Clinton would get, you know, like a four point bump in the polls, something like that, something that was right on the edge of the margin of error, you know, just very, you know, but but noticeable and, and fairly consistent. And that would evaporate, you know, within, you know, 30 days. And and so um, 
these speeches uh, tend to be boring. I'm leaving out the Trump speeches, which were insane enough not to be boring. Um, but I think the audience knows what they're in for. This is the most traditional of Democratic politicians, Joe Biden, who's going to get up there uh, and give a speech that will fall within that you know, large category of conventional Democratic presidents giving State of the Union addresses. And there will be a feeling of some kind of laundry list, even if they don't think it's a laundry list. And it will be called a laundry list, which is demeaning uh, to the people who need, you know, who couldn't afford insulin uh, before Joe Biden provided this, you know, laundry list item of dramatically reducing the price of it and making it affordable. Um, so that, you know, it, it's the first audience is the media. The media is never impressed by these speeches with, with some reason. At the same time, the media always exaggerates their importance, always. They pretend that speech making is the job. It's not. You know, that job, the job of the president, uh, we never get to see it. Never. It happens with the door closed. That's when the job is happening. This you know, a president giving a speech is not unlike a quarterback giving a speech at a press conference before the Super Bowl. The job is going to be on the field. And in government, the job is done uh, on the field, but with the door closed. And you never get to see how Joe Biden actually does the job. You just get to see the results of it. That's super interesting. So I, I want to ask you about the media because you mentioned how the media should be covering this event. How do you think the media should be covering this event? And what is your and MSNBC's approach tonight? I know you mentioned that you're going to be on after uh, the, the event, but are you and MSNBC thinking? My about approach best? tonight is to uh, politely uh, defer to the voices at the table who want to be heard. Uh, because the likelihood of me having any kind of strong reaction to a State of the Union address is very low, uh, and I'm kind of bored with what I think. Um, and so uh, I think the I generally think uh, the media should um, de-emphasize the notion that this is a real test uh, in mm -hmm. some way. I think they're correct in platforming it, you know, and to the extent that they stop everything and platform it, that's a good thing. But even with them doing that, even with the big networks, with the big reach, you know, NBC, CBS, and ABC, even with them clearing their schedules, the maximum, the maximum audience Joe Biden's going to get maximum would be 40 million. And the last one was like 38 million. Mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. 110 million people are going to watch the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Okay, so 110 million people are going to hear the singer sing. And a tiny fraction of them uh, are going to hear the president speak. And the ones who hear the president speak are not going to listen to the whole thing. Okay, so so in the whole thing, the people listen to the whole thing, you know, I don't know, I don't know what that is, but it's it's small. So you have about 11% of the population who gets exposed to this speech, 11%. And that 11% self-selects. So it won't be the 62% who remain relentlessly ignorant about what this presidency has done. They're not going to turn it on. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this won't reach them. It's just one, you know, little attempt to reach them. And then you've got two years to try to reach enough of them to get to, you know, a majority vote 
uh, for president. Um, so it's a, the, the stakes are dramatically lower than the news media uh, suggests they are, but in order to wipe out their entertainment schedules on the big networks and say, you must watch this, they always overhype the importance of it. And I wish we could say something is important without exaggerating how important it is. You know, and this is one of those weird things that the news media is never, the televised news media is never going to figure out how to do. Like, how do we say this is important, you should listen to this uh, without exaggerating how important it is? Well, for me, who is obviously a political junkie, um, I will watch the whole thing. But you're raising some very interesting questions, which is, one, basically, the MAGA Republicans we aren't going to reach, and there's no point in trying. But what about energizing Democrats through this speech? What about engaging independents? And is there a way to create any interest in bipartisan legislation? You know, there's rumors they're going to be talking about Section 230, which would immediately make me go, oh, why would you do that? But apparently advisors to the president are saying that that's something that might get bipartisan support. Do you think that's a topic that should be included? Do you think there's any hope of energizing Democrats, independents? And then as a really critical question because of what you're saying, is there a way to reformat this address to make it engaging, to get a 21st century audience that is not used to sitting for 60 or longer minutes on any one subject? Uh, I mean, Victor's generation is used to TikTok, you know, 30 second things. What, you know, what can be done to change the format as well as the content? Well, you know, I, I'm not on TikTok. I've seen it. But, you know, <laughs> uh, my generation and older loved the January 6th hearings uh, presentation, yep. which yep. revolutionized the congressional hearing as we know it, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. every member of that audience of every age was helped by that style of presentation, multimedia, uh, really a, a complete departure from anything that had ever occurred in a committee hearing room. And having run a bunch of uh, Senate committee hearings myself, I sat there in awe of, of how they did that. And so I, you know, I said last night, I asked uh, Kate Bedingfield, uh, White House Communications Director, um, can we somehow update this thing to the 21st century, like the January 6th committee updated the congressional hearing. And of course, here's why you can't, okay, the location. Uh, it's in the House of Representatives. Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, controls everything that happens in that room. So if you said, uh, Kevin, we'd like to have a big video monitor. We'd like to have, like they do in all TV audiences, you know, big video monitors over here. Right. Whenever you have a a TV show that has an audience for it. They have TV monitors in the room for you to see it. You know, uh, we want to do those monitors and then we want to run, you know, these videos of you, Kevin McCarthy, saying really stupid stuff. And we want to run the videos of the crazy Republicans who want 30% sales taxes. You know, we want to do, all and of course the speaker is going to say, no, just shut up and read your speech. You know, the speaker wants this, to, this speaker wants it to be the most boring speech deliverable. So the only hope, the only hope you could ever have for an updated version of this is you would have to have the speaker and the president be of the same party so that that speaker was willing to, in, in their mind, and I do understand this, you know, having been part of that institution, 
uh, kind of defile the temple, you know, that, that room that has been unchanged, you know, since it uh, was first constructed in any, unchanged in any way, to kind of change everything about it, you know, by putting a video screen up there. It's not unlike asking a cardinal, might we put a video screen over here on this part of the altar, you know, while you're speaking and we could, you know, it's, it's that level of, of uh, volcano that you're talking about. And, but I, I, I just can't quite believe that, you know, 25 years from now, the state of the union address will be a person going up there with a teleprompter and a printed, printed text in front, just in case the teleprompter breaks uh, and doing it, that way, uh, you know, I mean, and, and you could just say, you know, the thing about this State of the Union is um, it requires an invitation from the speaker, right? So the speaker decides when this is technically, and it's usually done with the utmost cooperation with the White House, not so, uh, with Donald Trump and so forth. But, you know, that's, that's who controls the, the event. There would be nothing to prevent the president of the United States from saying, I'm going to do it uh, at so the big arena in Washington, DC. It's gonna be multimedia, all of that. That's how I'm delivering my State of the Union address. I'm gonna show video of Republicans saying nutty stuff. I'm gonna, whatever I want that engages this thing, even just, you know, a, a list, like a graphic list, you know, like on our show when we say like, right. it's a three count indictment and we have, these three items up there on the screen exactly. me yeah. while I'm talking about it and it helps you, you know, you don't, yeah. you know, you, you follow it, you know? Um, and uh, th that's probably the future of this. And Oh, by the way, you just take that written text after you've delivered it that way to a TV audience and send it up to the, uh, to the house representatives to fulfill the constitutional obligation right. to report on the state of the union. You do it, exactly the way you said, pretty much all presidents did until the invention of radio and television. They never, they never went up there and gave the speech. They just sent up a piece of paper. And some of it, some of it was one piece of paper, you know, a few sentences. I think if the president wants to have an audience that pays attention to his agenda and his accomplishments, that graphics are essential, video may be essential, and that delivering it from the Oval Office or from a stadium with a packed audience of enthusiastic supporters um, and a written report to Congress may be the only way around it, except in mm -hmm. a uh, executive and uh, congressional uh, Democratic or Republican, where both parties are th uh, the same. It may be the answer because when Victor first raised with me this issue um, from an op-ed in the New York Times, about changing the format, I went, oh no, this is a serious thing. It needs to be serious. And then I read the op-ed and I went, you know, that's a much more effective communications tool and we need to do it. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe next year's State of the Union will be done that way. A written report handed up to the speaker and a dramatically wonderful, um, maybe Super Bowl halftime show worthy yes. presentation by the president. Well, I, and so one of the things that would happen with that right away, let's say it was next year, is that ABC, CBS, and NBC would probably refuse to cover it. The, the major networks would say, oh, this doesn't look official to mm. us. It doesn't look like a 
a kind of governing event. This looks like a rally. Um, therefore, we are not going to dump our entertainment program and cover your thing. Um, hmm. You know, I, I think there comes a point where you just have to make a decision about that uh, and say, well, you know, what do you guys get us anyway? You know, you, 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 you know, you get us, you know, those networks are going to get you maybe about half of the audience, you know, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, and so uh, you still have a very substantial audience if you, if you do it the other way. And then the other thing that is new about video is that it has a life after the live event, right? right? You know, so right. when we were kids and, you know, the president would get up and give the State of the Union address, the only time you were going to see any pieces of that again were within the next 24 hours on your local news or on mm -hmm. the network news. And it'd be very little, a tiny amount, right? And now, you know, there's just an endless life of it online. And, uh, you know, you get to include it in things you're tweeting and, uh, and use it in all sorts of ways. And so... Um, there's an argument to be made to just, uh, you know, to eventually take that choice where you lose the big networks, you know, because the, the news networks will still cover it, you know, they will, cause it's news. Right. So, um, and, and go ahead that way. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, it's, uh, it's a very, very predictable liturgy up there. Yeah. It's, like, it's very much like when I was a kid and, you know, the Catholic mass was in Latin, you know, I mean, you talk about, you know, <laughs> a repetitive exercise that no one understood. Like if you think, you know, understanding a president talking about his tax plan is complicated, <laughs> try understanding the Latin mass. No one did. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, and Jill, the, the interesting thing was when they switched to the vernacular around the world and you could deliver the mass in the language of the location, there was very much a feeling of, oh, 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 I don't know about that. That's, you know, we're going to, you know, that the feeling you have when you think, right. oh, let's change something about the State of the Union. And it, and it, it's, if you already have a certain reverence for it, you know, which you and I do for the State of the Union, the, once you start talking about changing it, it does get a little scary, but I've literally, I've sat through them on the floor. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's it's not easy. I've sat through them in the chamber. You know, Bill, they were all Bill Clinton's State of the Union addresses, and he had a tendency to go on and on. You know, uh, it's why there was always that famous photo of Ruth Bader Ginsburg dozing off during the State of yeah. the Union. It was. Uh, I mean, one of the as we're having this conversation, I had a couple of conversations with young people, and I can tell you that young people definitely. <laughs> are not tuning into the state of the union. And I've right. tried to get them to pay attention, but there's just something about the state of the union. And I think it kind of speaks to the conversation we're having now where just the medium that it's occurring, you know, first of all, we don't watch cable news all that often. Uh, young people just aren't the ones paying attention to, pe to uh, outlets like CBS, ABC, NBC. And so you mentioned this word multimedia. And so I hopeful, hopefully if we do convert to some sort of different alternative to this joint session of Congress, we can capitalize on things like YouTube or Instagram or um, different kind of platforms to reach a younger audience, to get them to pay attention. Because you mentioned the January 6th hearing, and I remember this really vividly. It was the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp hearing a couple of weeks before and basically everyone was watching that and no one right. watched the first January 6th hearing. So it's like, how do you reach a younger audience? Well, I'll That's tell you, when, when, challenge. when Johnny Depp is president, the State of the Union is going to be cool again. Okay. Yes. They are, they are <laughs> going to watch. They're going to watch them. 
Yeah, exactly. So we want to turn to post-State of the Union because after tonight, uh, President Biden will face an uphill battle as Republicans maintain control of the House, but Democrats still have control of the Senate and the executive branch. Is there anything that the Senate can do specifically to help advance his agenda, even though the House is Republican controlled? Well, the Senate still has that unique power to uh, confirm federal judges, which Joe Biden has used more effectively than any president of, of his lifetime, because it used to be his job in the Senate to confirm federal judges as the chairman of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. And Ron Klain, his White House chief of staff, uh, was the counsel to that committee and was in the business of confirming judges and Supreme Court judges. And so those two went at this in a way that was smarter than any previous president. And so they have done an amazing job of getting them confirmed and they will continue to do it into uh, next year. And as we see all the time and different pieces of litigation that pop up, that is hugely important. It's it's impossible to convince voters of this, but Republican voters have always understood it, which is why they control the Supreme Court, because Republican voters were going to vote for the Republican candidate and they were going to turn out for the Republican candidate no matter what, because they wanted the Supreme Court so they could get that overturn uh, of Roe versus Wade, which took them 50 years to get, but they got it. Democratic voters have never responded to the notion of uh, the presidential appointment power as a voting issue. But that's that's the most important now. It's the single most important business of the Senate because there's really nothing else they can do, right? They not doesn't matter if, if Chuck Schumer fights tooth and nail to squeeze some bill uh, through the Senate um, with 51 votes. Uh, the House isn't going to take it up. Kevin McCarthy's not going to take it up. You know, so um, it's I'm telling you all they're thinking about. The only thing that Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries, the only thing they're thinking about is how do we get the debt ceiling passed? That's the only thing they're thinking about. And uh, if they get that done, you know, uh, that's that's basically their job. I, I, I think you're highlighting a lot of the accomplishments of President Biden and the courts certainly are among those. And I think for the first time, Democrats are getting that this is crucial. I think Dobbs certainly raised the awareness of how important it is. Although I remember when we didn't have Democratic judges and Republican judges. We right. had qualified neutral judges. And I personally wish we could go back to that. But um, I, I'm just still hoping that there is something, maybe an executive action that uh, President Biden could take that will move us forward in a time of total lack of bipartisanship in a total blockade by the House. Is there anything you can think of um, where they can accomplish something? And what are the biggest issues that Biden should be working on, particularly? Well, to you know, I've, I've asked them that, you know, what can you do in executive action? And usually the, the true answer is usually very, very little. And they usually explore that in the first year about as far as they can, you know, new presidents. Um, and so, and they did do some executive actions right off the bat to reverse Trump executive actions. So that's kind of, that's the first draft of executive action is, is reversing what the previous guy did, you know? And, and so, so there's usually very, very, very little left after that. And what you get into now would be 
executive actions that will be challenged in court because you'd have to be going out on the outer edge of the theory, of the legal theory of that executive action, because all the easy ones have been done, right? So, uh, so then you then you find yourself in this, um, you know, basically in a litigation zone uh, as soon as you do it. So, uh, executive action is a thing that presidents get to say in situations like this, so people don't lose all hope. Um, but but that's really why they say it. Uh, there's very very little that you can do in that arena. I'm certainly not going to lose all hope. I believe. In well, no, I mean, you know, you can't in a country that has elections every year and, you know, yeah, it's yeah. not two years, it's every year. Mm -hmm. There are in some cities, you know, the election for mayor is in the odd numbered years. Uh, uh, same thing with uh, some governorships and so forth. And so, so the idea that, um, you know, the, that, that it's all, all is lost is utterly impossible in American politics because of the frequency of elections, yeah, yeah. Uh, which people should relish in. And instead, you know, when Georgia voters get hit with a series of elections to elect their senator, we talk about will will there be voter fatigue? You know, oh. the, you know, Georgia, you know, they're going to have to have a, a final runoff, you know, uh, uh, in the Senate election will the Georgia voters just say, oh, sorry, I voted once I give up that the feeding that notion is, is, is really perverse. Why wouldn't the Georgia voters think, wow, the game went into overtime. This is unbelievable. Oh, I'm going to, we have to, this is great. You know, there's not a sports fan on earth who yeah. when the basketball game ends in a tie, thinks, oh, I'm turning this off. I just, I, it's supposed to be over in four quarters. What are they doing, you know? And uh, and so we have to learn to, to feel the uh, excitement of voting. We have to learn to feel the obligation of voting, which should not be felt in a burdensome way. It should be felt like the ob obligation of parenting, which is a hugely positive obligation that we welcome yeah. into our lives and want to have, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a, in, in federal governing, it's a two year cycle. It's just, it's, it's, there's no, it'd be nutty to lose hope in the, anything involving the federal system. Yeah. If you can't legislate anything significant, uh, for the next two years, you know, you're going to be able be able to you know, starting two years from now, and uh, that's the way you should approach it. That your your job as a voter and a citizen is to just make sure that two years from now you can do it. And the minimal thing you have to do, and I mean the minimal thing, is just vote. You know, and the, yeah. the, the, the thing that's a little better than that is try to help and urge other people to vote, and then you can increase your commitment from there if you want to. But uh, it's there's this is the system where uh, optimism is just it's built into it. They, they yeah, put it yeah. right there. I mean, it's almost as if the founders said, we know some people are going to feel bad, you know, about these when, you know, Election Day. Therefore, we're going to let them do it again in two years. Oh, great. OK, good. Yeah. You know, um, that's uh, they didn't have to do that. You know, it it, uh, it could have been that parliamentary system where, you know, elections are randomly timed and you can go you can go ye many years without them uh 
And they said, no, 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 we want, we want to keep everybody optimistically engaged um, in, in having a voice in having their way, having the hope, to come back to the word hope, the hope of having their way. Well, I love your sports analogy, and I am a complete illiterate almost, as is Victor, I hope. As am I, yes. About sports, <laughs> except for the Cubs for me. But I really understood that analogy about the game going into overtime. I mean, I'm so jealous of Georgia voters. I've never voted in a state. <laughs> I, I've, I voted in Massachusetts, New York, California. My vote has for president has never, never. happened because <laughs> yeah. of the electoral college, which I sadly have understood all along, yeah. right? And so I've never been in a place where the, where the vote, where my vote matters because the outcome was understood and the, and the leader in the polls was, you know, significantly far ahead in the polls every time for, for pretty much every office. Yeah. I mean, it's very rarely, I can't remember, you know, Ted Kennedy was the senator in Massachusetts, you know, running for automatic reelection. Like, uh, sorry, there was no suspense. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I'm so jealous of those uh, swing state voters, the voters who get, you know, those elections like Georgia has for Senate. I mean, man, that's that's exciting stuff. Or Iowa, where they actually get people, all the candidates come there. I'm in Illinois. Mm -hmm. It's a blue state. It's never going to not be a blue state. And therefore, we don't get the candidates. I don't get to see them live unless I am on the campaign trail going somewhere where I will see the candidates. Mm -hmm. So you're you're 100 percent right on that. I, I I wish we had a different system that didn't include the Electoral College, because then every person's vote would really matter. It would be a popular vote and everyone would matter. It wouldn't just be in the states that are swing states. You know, during, during the New Hampshire primaries, uh, if you talk to the crowds <clears throat> who are lining up to go into the high school gymnasiums to see these candidates, I, I mean, I, this is anecdotal, but I've had days where it has felt to me like half of them, certainly a third of them, are from Massachusetts. And they drive up because this is the only time in their lives they're going to see candidates because no candidate ever, no presidential candidate ever goes to Massachusetts because that is locked in for the Democrat, right? And wow. so uh, that's that point. And, and the great thing about New Hampshire is it's tiny enough that you can just drive around to four high school gymnasiums in an afternoon uh, and see four of them, you know, two from each party if you want to. That's exactly what my class did during the 2020 Iowa caucuses. We uh, went from Illinois to Iowa because yeah. no candidate would come to, uh, right. to Illinois. So we right. went to Iowa. And, and one of the things, that, I mean, just to wrap up this conversation, but as you were talking, Jill has heard me say this saying before. And it's one of my favorite sayings that my AP government teacher told his class. And I think kind of captures the essence of why all of us should be engaged. And he says, that everyone should embrace the civics lifestyle, which is, um, you know, elections happen, sure, every year, but throughout those times, we should all be engaged and still know that we have a duty as citizens and be optimistic and be hopeful and still participate in this beautiful democracy. And um, so I hope we can all take that to heart tonight as we watch the State of the Union, and hopefully we can get more than 40 million people to tune in. Hopefully we can make it a halftime show someday. Yeah, let's, let's hope for that. Definitely. Thank well. You. So much for being with us. This was a really interesting and educational conversation. We appreciate I'm sorry, it. I'm sorry that I couldn't predict what he's going to say tonight. <laughs> but we you will know, see you at I'm 10 p.m. post that. State of the Union. Yeah, I, I'm with you on, I hate when you were asked, 
well, what could happen an hour before it's going to happen? Let's wait. I'll yep. see. Yep. Thank but you very thank much. You. Thank you for Thanks your so much. Thanks, Lawrence. Well, Lawrence is always so interesting and, you know, I'm going to follow his rule and we are not going to make any predictions. I was going to ask you what you think he's going to say, but let's wait until next week to talk about the State of the Union. Um, I know both of us are pressed on time, so um, we just want to thank all of our audience for tuning in today. Jill, do you have any last words before we uh, sign off for this week? No, I am for reforming uh, both the Electoral College and the method of delivery of the State of the Union to engage your generation and, frankly, even mine. I mean, you and I will be watching minute by minute, but I, I hope other people will take it seriously enough to pay attention to what facts are laid out, what the agenda going forward is, and to celebrate the accomplishments. As Lauren said, this is the most consequential, accomplished president since FDR, which is before even my generation. So let's all get with it and watch tonight. And we're going to include that New York Times op-ed in our show notes because it's a great, great piece. He was actually on uh, the 11th hour last night. His name is Josh, and I'm going to butcher his last name, Tiringil. It's um, he's a journalist. That is okay. So he's a journalist, and he's and he's worked on um, 11 Emmy award-winning shows or uh, work. So he's an impressive person who knows how to capture an audience. And I think it's a great op-ed. We'll post it in our show notes for all of you to read, because I think like Lawrence made clear, I mean, we just need to reform the state of the union and hopefully engage more people in this process. Um, We'll be back next week. Well, go ahead. Were you going to say something? I was going to say, Victor, you gave me an idea. You know, Lawrence said he's never written a speech for a president except a fictional one. And maybe we should look for an episode of West Wing where President Bartlett gives a speech that Lawrence O'Donnell has written. That would be fun to include in our show notes. I think that would. We haven't seen that series. I'm sure it's still available. And it is fabulous. It's really it's well amazing. Well it is amazing. And it's still on Netflix. So so before it's off of Netflix, go go and watch that. Um, we'll be back next week for another episode of iGen Politics. You do not want to miss that. Let us know what you think of the State of the Union. You can tweet us uh, at Jill Weinbanks or at VictorShu2020 on Twitter. Uh, it'll be exciting to see what everyone thinks of tonight's speech, uh, which is his second State of the Union speech uh, in front of Congress. So it should be very exciting. We'll be back next week right here on youtube.com slash Politicon or wherever you follow your podcast. If you're listening to this, we're every Wednesday. So don't miss us there. Subscribe wherever you follow your podcast and leave us a rating as it helps others find the podcast. So please help us do that. And we will see you next week for another episode. Have a great rest of your Tuesday or Wednesday. Thanks so much for watching or listening.